Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Now, the maritime historical world is full of wonders and you don't really need to look very far at all to discover things that make you stop in your tracks, scratch your head, throw your hands to the sky in wonderment at what they managed to achieve all of those years ago. I remember once coming across a book by an experienced and knowledgeable scholar of the Middle Ages, and one whose knowledge transcended all aspects of engineering. And he claimed that the invention of the multi-masted ocean-going sailing ship and its safe navigation was an intellectual and practical achievement to rival the construction of the great medieval cathedrals of Europe. It's a wonderful interdisciplinary comparison and one which really struck a chord with me. You can, in fact, take the observation a little further, because if you look up when you're in a medieval chapel, the one at Hampton Court in London is a great example from the Tudor period, in the timber ceiling you will essentially see the hull of a boat upturned. Much of the timber work and engineering required to make a timber roof is similar to that of making a ship's hull. Ship construction, of course, is just one aspect of this extraordinary achievement. There are others. Seamanship is one. And then today's topic, navigation, which is just one aspect of seamanship. But the topic of navigation in the Middle Ages is multifaceted. It is one that takes us into the deep oceans where issues of wind, current, tide and depth are all influential but it also takes us up into the sky where the sun, moon, the planets and the stars help us find where we are and when we are. To find out more, I spoke with Seb Falk from Girton College in Cambridge. Seb is a multi-talented man who has helped us, actually, in a previous episode as a musician. He used his skills to record a song written in the aftermath of a very famous maritime disaster story, that of the wreck of HMS Guardian. Now, that episode includes Seb's rendition of a song, The Foxal Sailor, or The Guardian Frigate. And the song was written by Mr Shapter, and it was sung by Mr Darley at Vauxhall Gardens. 
and it all happened in 1790 or 1791. It is most likely that this was the first ever recording that's ever been made of the song, and it all happened on the Mariner's Mirror podcast. So if you want to listen to that, please find the episode entitled Maritime Disasters, HMS Guardian, released in August 2022. Today, however, Seb is navigating the waters of his real experience. For Seb is a historian who specialises in the history of astronomy, navigation, mathematics, the theories and technology from their ancient origins to modern developments. He is the author of a really wonderful book called The Light Ages, A Medieval Journey of Discovery. For Seb, the Middle Ages were a time of wonder. They gave us the first universities, the first eyeglasses, the first mechanical clocks, as medieval thinkers sought to understand the world around them, from the passing of the seasons to the stars in the sky. Unsurprisingly, Seb has a great deal to say about the history of navigation in this fascinating period. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. So here is the multi-talented Seb. Seb, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. So, um, medieval navigation is what we're going to try and unpick today. First off, bit of a broad question, but how does the study of navigation in this period help our understanding of what's going on more generally in the Middle Ages? Well, I suppose navigation, trade, travel, those are things that people have always been doing. Um, and it's always been a concern of human societies who want to get stuff, who want to move around, who want to exchange knowledge. Uh, so that's uh, just a kind of a given, really. Um, for me, as a historian of science, uh, I see it as part of the development of human knowledge. Um, and navigation is a kind of ancillary science in a way. It's a sort of an application of what was the key science of the Middle Ages, which was astronomy. So I'm a historian of astronomy, a historian of mathematics. Uh, and that's, um, in a way, the kind of the ultimate science in the Middle Ages. It was the most uh, mathematized, the most kind of professionalized science uh, in that period. Uh, and navigation kind of follows on naturally from that. Yeah, and instrumental to the to the way that navigation developed. Um, just talking about it more broadly, how, how were the, as a historian, how do you um, deal with the fact that there are, I suppose, at least three major geographical areas where developments are happening. You've got China, you've got Latin Christendom, and then you've got the Islamic world. Um, how do you get over that? Uh, I mean, I suppose the short answer is most people specialise in one or another. Um, mm. I think China is kind of separate. I mean, there are some uh, examples of cooperation or some examples of collaboration or sharing of ideas. But broadly speaking, for you know most of the period I deal with, from the about 1000 to 1500, there's not a huge amount of contact and where there is contact uh, we don't really see the exchange of technologies that much there are some technologies which were developed first in china and and then um used in europe later and we might get onto those but um trying to track the progress of development trying to track uh, the exchange of ideas uh, between china and and the rest of eurasia is is very tricky uh the islamic world and western europe is much um, more porous there's much more going on much more exchange of ideas and those you can almost treat kind of as a whole uh, sort of ebb and flow of ideas uh, over time mutual development mutual exchange uh, and that I think is is not so problematic um, but of course 
generally people with their own cultural uh, backgrounds or their own linguistic skills tend to specialize in in one or another and and then examine the other culture simply as a kind of an input or an output Mm. I suppose the whole question of studying astronomy does share a lot with uh, navigation in terms of the difficulty, the difference between theory and practice. But I suspect that it's more the case that navigation suffers from gaps in the history because you, 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 such a practical skill must have necessarily lost quite a large amount of, of it to history. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, how do we know about past navigational practices? Some stuff gets written down in manuals. We have archaeological um, records, of course, uh, in the broadest sense, um, obviously shipwrecks and, and uh, instruments that survived in one way or another. We have uh, pictorial uh, illustrations. Uh, I mean, you have to, as a historian, I mean, as a medieval historian in general, you have to kind of use what sources you have. And sometimes they're not the ideal sources. So some, you know, one of one of the best sources actually for uh, English kind of high, late medieval navigational practices is actually a language textbook, uh, broadly mm. speaking, that was uh, written by a guy called Alexander Neckham, uh, who just uses the vocabulary of navigation as a way of teaching English grammar, um, or I should <laughs> say Latin grammar, um, but, uh, but, but to English people. And, um, uh, and, and, and so it's kind of by the by that we get all this information about the sorts of things that people had on board ship, um, because otherwise, you know, you're just reliant on accounts, chronicle accounts, um, or, uh, as I say, pictures and that kind of thing uh, to, to work out what it was that people were doing. Um, but the kind of the cutting edge science of it is is tricky because some of it was written down in manuals, but but large amounts of it were really uh, passed down, you know, from from master to pupil or, or, you know, within families. And we don't always have a huge amounts of detail about what people really did on board ship. Yeah. And I think some of the um, uh, the techniques and the objects that they created to help them with their navigation are so complicated as well. It always, I'm always slightly suspicious that we think we know how they were used, but actually we're wrong. Yeah, I mean, my real specialism is astronomical instruments. Um, uh, listeners won't be able to see, but I've got an astrolabe behind me and I, I've got another one here that I can jingle at the microphone that maybe people will be able to hear at least. Uh, and an astrolabe is the kind of quintessential medieval uh, astronomical instrument. I, I use the word astronomical carefully because uh, although we do later get mariners' astrolabes, which kind of became popular around 1500, they were really stripped-down versions. I mean, some historians have kind of argued they actually almost have nothing to do with the real um, smart planispheric astrolabe that you see in museums and uh, fans of Philip Pullman will, will recognise in, in uh, Lyra as a lithiometer uh, from, um, from uh, The Golden Compass, uh, the, the, the film of uh, those books. But um, I tell you what, why don't you just describe what an astrolabe looks like to someone who doesn't know what an astrolabe looks like? Right, so um, an astrolabe is a brass disc uh, and it's typically... Um, sized to fit in the palm of your hand, uh, although generally uh, they're a little bit a little bit bigger than that. Normally they're kind of up to about twenty to thirty centimeters uh, in diameter. So you've got a brass disc uh, and it's flat, uh, and uh, engraved on that disc is a kind of grid lines of the heavens, the sky, as well as the horizon for your particular area. Now, uh, the shape of the sky and the horizon for your area, uh, and crucially, 
um, the location of the North Pole um, will vary depending on where you are. So astrolabes typically have little brass uh, plates that you can slot in for different latitudes. So whether you go north or south, uh, you can have a plate, a grid, uh, grid line of the sky uh, showing uh, the zenith directly above your head, showing the North Pole around which all the stars rotate, showing your local horizon. And then on top of that, you have uh, a kind of cutout um, net-shaped um, plate uh, which shows you the stars. It's called the Riti, uh, and that rotates over uh, your um, plate of grid lines. So you basically have the stars rising and setting as you turn the Riti. So as you turn that, you can watch the stars rise and set. You, you can locate the sun among the stars because the sun uh, was, was seen as a, as a planet in many ways. And, and you can think of it in that way as something that moves among the otherwise uh, fixed stars. They were known as fixed because uh, they stayed in the same positions relative to one another. Uh, and by doing that, you can work out what time uh, a star or the sun will rise and set. You can work out what time it is. You can work out the direction of north. You can work out how long the day will be. Uh, you could also do some things in surveying, like figure out the height of a building. Uh, so it's it's got many uses in navigation, but it's also got other practical uses. It's got uses in astrology. Uh, and this is a kind of all-purpose astronomical tool. So I like to liken it to uh, a medieval smartphone because it's got all these functions which brought together the functions of other pre-existing devices. Um, but also it was kind of a neat, elegant package, a bit like a smartphone is uh, today, so that people don't just have them for their practical use. They also have them to show off to their friends and, and the people who made them kind of uh, would pride themselves on on the design innovations and, and making them look good as well as what they could do. And if dropped, they would also break? Uh, well, <laughs> perhaps not as much, uh, but certainly a lot of the surviving instruments have been repaired over the years, and, and we do kind of like to look at how that how that happened. Uh, but the other thing is, because they were quite valuable, people might not have taken them to sea as much as we might assume. So when oh, we look at the ones in... Yeah, the thing about museum objects is that the things that survive to be in museums today are not necessarily the ones that were kind of purely functional objects because people, you know, were uh, took pride in them. People were, were very careful about them. So we do have some astrolabes with sort of navigational markings on them, things for calculating the tides and so on. Uh, but um, some historians have argued that they're largely symbolic, that they wouldn't have gone to sea because they were too valuable. No one wants to risk dropping them overboard. And the ones that we find, the mariner's astrolabes that we find uh, from largely the 16th century that have been kind of washed up on, on coasts and so on and found in shipwrecks are much, much simpler. So they, uh, you know, rather than have this brass disc, um, they've got uh, holes cut through so that you can hold it up in the wind and not have it be blown around when you're trying to use it on board uh, a ship in the wind and so on. Um, when do we, we know when was the first, well, not the first one invented, when was the, the idea behind the astrolabe sort of first um, settled on? So the idea goes back basically to the ancient Greeks. Um, Ptolemy, the, the uh, ancient Greek astronomer who lived in the second century AD in Alexandria, um, writes something um, called the planispherium, which is this, basically, it's how you get the three-dimensional sphere onto a two-dimensional disk. So it's a little bit like a projection of a world map, right? You've, you've got a globe, but how are you going to make it work as uh, a flat um, sheet? 
Uh, and the same problem exists for the heavens, right? You can, you can, you've got the heavens, but how are you going to actually make them usable as a flat disk, especially when you've got your own local horizon, which is at a fixed angle um, to to the uh, equator, um, and also um, you've got to factor in the angle of the ecliptic, which is the uh, the the line that the sun follows on its path through the stars, which is essential. If you if you want to tell the time, you need to understand um, where the sun is on its passage through the stars, and you can't do that unless you understand uh, those angles. So you've basically you've got three planes. You've got the plane of the ecliptic, uh, the plane of the equator and the plane of the horizon or in modern terms you've got uh, the plane of our own horizon the plane of um, the rotation the earth's daily rotation and the plane of the earth's revolution around uh, around the sun which is uh, you know, about 23 and a half degrees angled uh, to the to the earth's rotation so you've got I've got to understand those three um, those three angles those three planes uh, and in order to um, to map that on a flat surface, it takes quite a lot of complicated geometry. And that was the product of ancient Greek mathematics in about the second century AD, although it goes back further. Um, but astrolabes as an instrument, um, we don't know whether Ptolemy really made one or whether he just came up with the theory, but they existed by the sixth century AD. Uh, and then certainly the ideas and the instruments were developed in the Islamic world uh, in the kind of 7th, 8th, 9th century. Um, they came into Europe and were sort of developed further uh, in the kind of 10th, 11th centuries and really hit their peak of popularity, uh, you know, around about 1500. And then they kind of die down a bit because people get more interested in things like clocks uh, and, and sort of um, clockwork and, and automatic instruments, if you like, rather than the sort of hand-operated instruments. Um, and then uh, they carry on being popular uh, in the Islamic world, particularly in um, what's now Pakistan, but the sort of Mughal Empire um, right up into the 19th century because a lot of Muslims still find them useful to find prayer times and, and uh, potentially find the direction of Mecca and so on. Um, so they have quite a long life. It's interesting you mentioned people became more interested in clocks a little later. So one of the key things, I suppose, that's missing from what for the navigation challenge in the Middle Ages is, is this question of time. How did they cope with that? So they don't really bother very much with longitude. I mean, I guess you're talking about longitude, right? So, um, well, so why do you need to know time, I suppose, is, is another question. Um, and, and, and in terms of navigation... Um, you, you want to know the time because you want to know when local noon is, potentially. But actually, in a way, that's flipping the problem around. So you want to know when local noon is because you want to know when the sun is highest in the sky so that you can measure your latitude by measuring the height of the sun in the sky. But if you just watch the sun till it gets to its highest point, you found local noon. Or potentially, when the sun is in the south, that's also local noon. I mean, these things are both actually quite tricky because uh, the sun moves least closest to noon. So if you're measuring um, the your position by the height of the sun, uh, it's quite hard to do in the daytime. Uh, whereas at nighttime, it's a bit easier because you just assuming that you're... Well, if you want to be really precise about it, you take multiple measurements of the North Star because medieval people were aware that the North Star wasn't actually exactly at north. But for most purposes, you could just take a, a reading, uh, an altitude sighting on the North Star, and that would tell you your latitude. Um, so that's simple enough. Then longitude 
um, when they were when they were doing that kind of navigation, which um, I maybe might need to loop back and explain that they weren't doing that very much. No. <laughs> um, they uh, they they weren't really worrying very much about longitude, frankly, because okay. they understood that it it wasn't something that could be done without knowing essentially. Um, the time or, or or having some kind of insight into the conditions at your home port because uh you know as as probably most listeners to this podcast understand latitude is an absolute thing latitude is a real measurement north or south of the equator because that's um you know the the um way that the axis of the earth runs whereas longitude is a kind of human uh, concept and you could you could put your prime meridian anywhere and it's just a dis- measurement of distance around the earth from your prime meridian which is a measurement of time because the earth spins once in 24 hours um, so without knowing without having some way of knowing what the time is at your prime meridian knowing the time where you are is is not helpful yeah Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So the, the key thing is, is that you've got these complex things like an astrolabe, or you've certainly got a complex understanding of the stars and the heavens and the sky. But then you've got a quite a rough way of working out where you've been, dead reckoning, mm. whatever it might be. So you've got a, a real... Um, I love the mix between um, people kind of doing their best with, like, charts with pegs in trying to work out how far they've gone with the wind and the tide mm. um in, in compared with the kind of the the elaborate beauty of something like an astrolabe mm. yeah and and remember that mapping in the middle ages was more figurative shall we say it was it, it had different purposes uh, so most of the maps that we have from the middle ages are more like itineraries it's more like the sort of thing that you might draw for your uh, for your friend, if you're trying to say, well, this is the way to the station from my house, you know, you go down the road to the pub and you draw the pub and then you turn left until you hit the traffic lights and you draw the traffic lights. And it's a little bit like that um, because I think there wasn't as much sense of use in making maps for uh, popular consumption, partly because without printing, if you draw a really complicated map, 
there's no guarantee that the person who comes along and copies it is going to copy it accurately. And so, you know, the more complicated you make your map, the less likely it is to be copied accurately. In fact, the less likely it is to be copied at all, because when somebody comes along and sees a really complicated map or a really complicated diagram of any kind, um, we can see as historians, the more complicated they are, the more they just get left out by copyists when, when copyists come and copy manuscripts because they think, oh, this is just too complicated. I'll probably get it wrong and I'll leave it for someone else. Um, so uh, there's a real skill in a way when you when you write a book in the Middle Ages uh, or when you write a navigation manual, write, when you write anything, uh, to keep the diagrams really simple so you can make sure that the essential details will get copied and will get copied accurately. Uh, of course, then printing comes along in the in the mid or in in Europe in the mid fifteenth century, uh, and uh, and that changes the game completely because then maps can be uh, copied reliably. And if you notice a mistake in a map, you can go back to the printer and say, "Oi, this is wrong." Sort it out in your next edition, which you couldn't do with hand copied manuscripts. Um, so so there's a real kind of incentive and there's a real mechanism uh, for making maps better. Um, but what happens basically in the in the period before printing is that you get the development, and I'm sure you've probably covered this in previous uh, episodes of your podcast. But if not, um, uh, it would be great to have an episode on on Porterland charts. Uh, I was about is, to bring them yeah, up. Yeah, yeah we'll yeah. do a separate one, I think. But let's briefly describe what those are. They're wonderful. They're my yeah. favourite type of source of maritime history. I think. Yeah. Well, the word Porterland, you know, is related to the word port, of course, and they basically come out of. Um, sort of uh, harbour diagrams, essentially. Um, so, you know, you can kind of imagine those 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 listeners who've done any sailing, you know, will, will think be able to think about uh, the kinds of charts that people have of harbours that have, you know, this is a safe place to anchor and this is a, uh, you know, place that there's a big rock and you don't want to go over that side and, and so on and so forth. Uh, this is the more sheltered side and this is the less sheltered side. Um, and they come out of those sort of things. So again, it's quite similar to the kind of, word of mouth handwritten diagrams uh, and then people gradually accumulate charts of that are basically just coastlines with safe harbors marked along them so um, you know we've got a lot of uh, surviving ones of western europe and the mediterranean and and, and the northern part of west africa um, this is from kind of the middle of the 15th century onwards but there, there are some slightly earlier ones um, but they, they really take off um, with the popularity of the magnetic compass as well. And this is another thing uh, that, that um, is a real factor. Um, but yeah, so you get these basically just coastlines that are just made up of these forest of names written all the way down the coastline. And, um, and they're just the names of safe harbours, places that you can go. Um, and then rum lines get added. So just uh, yes. compass direction lines. What they don't have uh, initially is lines of latitude and longitude. And that's really interesting because... Uh, medieval people did know about latitude and longitude. They just didn't quite see the point initially of putting them on their maps uh, because I think, you know, most people uh, were quite content either to follow a coastline um, or just to kind of strike out in a direction for, you know, sail north for 12 hours kind of thing um, and then hit a bit of coastline. And if you don't recognise it, sail in one direction or the other direction until you find a bit that you do recognise. Um, so it, it's it's a sort of uh, handrailing technique, I suppose, in a way, uh, where people, um, you know, it, it's not like they they completely sailed within sight of land because, of course, they cross the channel all the time. Um, but generally speaking, most navigation was done within familiar waters uh, and so you didn't need to spend too much time out of out of sight of land 
it's why those views of um, of the land from the sea are so important to the history of navigation. So people coming across, um, you know, coast, distinctive coastlines, and they must have loved it when they saw... I've just come back from Western Australia. There's a very distinctive bit of coast just north of Perth, and they must have rubbed their hands together with glee, knowing that, you know, only 10 miles south of there is a nice safe harbour. Um, but uh, they're fascinating, that, the, the, the views of coasts. Mm. Um, I think particularly I've looked at some wonderful ones from the 17th century in the Caribbean, um, and I've also sorry it's me rambling here, but no, I've no. also thought that the uh, the seamanship of of discovery is really interesting. I don't think people have done enough about that. Like, how do you actually explore a coastline without endangering your ship? Yes, loads of ships got wrecked, but a huge number didn't, which is why we managed to discover the world. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is slowly, right? You know, yeah. you you go not in your big ship, you go in little rowboats, and you sail up and down, and you drop lead lines, and you kind of. You, you go until you bump into a rock and then you back up kind of thing. Um, yeah, and you don't... Even the big ships that you've come from are quite small ships. That's so true. they're yeah. relatively speaking. You know, the Dutch would send off, um, uh, you know, the, the, the much lighter yachts. Mm. And then from them, they'd, they'd, um, they'd explore. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, the other thing is also, those of us that are used to kind of pootling about in fiberglass things um, are... Are, you know a bit panicky when we run into a rock or something but um Terrible. you know if you if you're in a big wooden ship you're used to patching it up every now and again and bailing it out and and i think probably it was just kind of a, a fact of life they always let in a bit of water and when they let in a lot of water you fix the problem and you you carried on so um, i always explained um when I used to teach this sort of stuff about seamanship long, long time ago, so you could get a wooden pencil, and you break it in half, <clears throat> and there is not a catastrophe. You've just got two brilliant pencils. <laughs> you just sharpen one end and off you go. And um, I made some wonderful discoveries of people making rudders out of masts and masts out of rudders and, you know, sort of pat patching up holes in the hole with sails. They, the whole thing was a kind of organic Lego kit. Mm, yeah. And I think, you know, it's worth saying, it's not really my, my field, but it's worth saying that the... The Middle Ages is a time of a lot of experimentation in that area, you know, centre line rudders, better ways of um, of sailing upwind, different kinds of rigs, and all of those contribute to um, the sort of European desire and ability to explore uh, more efficiently and, and, and further afield. Because it's not just like suddenly, you know, Europeans... We're all looking at Europe and then suddenly 1492 Columbus goes over and, and discovers America. There are lots of stages in that process. And some of those stages involve better mapping the use of the compass, better understanding of tides uh, and better understanding of kind of navigation. But also there's these practical, you know, how are we going to store water? How are our boats going to sail upwind? You know, can we steer um, uh, close to the wind and, and hold a course better? And those are all things that uh, that develop um, you know, through the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries in order to make the kind of the 15th century the, the, the century when, when the sort of big flagship discoveries happen. Yeah, um, I love the idea there of just sort of rowing ahead of your boat and dropping down a lead line to find out, you know, what the, the, the sea floor was like. Mm. Uh, and it kind of raises a broader question of um, the understanding of, of the natural world and how the, the medieval kind of brain uh, approached that. Yeah. I guess one of the things I suppose that um, I would say is that, that medieval people were, were as curious as we are today. Um, you know, there was a huge amount that they understood that they didn't know um, and that um, they were kind of curious to know. Uh, obviously, um, for a lot of um, medieval people, 
understanding, learning about about the natural world was in a kind of religious context. So for them, it was about understanding God's creation. Uh, so um, the, the the metaphor was very popular in the Middle Ages that uh, you could learn about God uh, through uh, two books: the Book of Scripture, of obviously the Bible, and the Book of Nature. So uh, that, that sort of nature had been put there uh, to learn about um, learn about God. Uh, so for them, there was this kind of background motivation that you know the more you found out about nature the more um you know you 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 were kind of being a devout christian you were being a, a good religious person but um i mean fundamentally i think there's a real practical desire you know it, whatever reason you're doing it for um there's there's a, a a desire to find out more about nature that is a desire to kind of discover new things and and uh, and just a kind of curiosity uh, and we find curiosity not only in you know what's at the bottom of that body of water but also you know um how do i make this instrument work better how do i tinker uh, with this um sailing ship to make the rig more efficient and so on mm. what were the major what do you think the most important scientific breakthroughs were um say uh, you know up to 1200 up to 1200 um yeah, i mean i think kind of because what we have in the 12th century um, so yeah, obviously the 1100s is a really big um, influx of of new information into into medieval Europe. Uh, some people have called it the 12th century Renaissance, even, uh, and this is largely a kind of rediscovery of ancient learning. Uh, so some people listening to this will say, well, that doesn't count because they're basically just picking up on what Aristotle knew or what Plato knew or what uh, what what Ptolemy knew. Um, but you know they build on that, um, and and also that's filtered through um, discoveries and, and accomplishments that had been made uh, in the interim in the Islamic world. So everything you know, a lot of um, what uh, medieval people in in Europe were really excited to discover that Aristotle had known had also been added to by people like Avicenna, uh, Ibn Sina, who lived um, around about the year one thousand, um, and. Um, and so there's this really important period of kind of um, rediscovery, if you like, or discovery of stuff that the ancients had known. Um, but that really can't be put down as a kind of achievement of Europeans, you know, learning what other people already knew. Um, but they did kind of build on that. And that goes into the foundation of the universities. The medieval universities really took off from around 1200. Um, and uh, that's a place where, you know, new ideas um, about how to understand the properties of substances, for example, how to understand um, things like temperature, weight, uh, speed, things that previously hadn't really been measurable uh, because, you know, things were just hot or cold or fast or slow um, uh, or wet or dry. Um, medieval people start to figure out ways to theorise that, which are essential for later developments in, in physics, but they don't really bear fruit until, um, you know, the, the sort of physicists of the of the kind of 16th, 17th century sort of see what to do with them, if you like. So in a way, the medieval period is a kind of period of, of consolidation in scientific ideas, but it's also a period of technological development because we see um, around about in the 13th century, we see the development of the clock, the mechanical clock, which is really absolutely essential in many ways, probably the most important technological development of the Middle Ages, or also lenses. Uh, you know, everybody focuses on the telescope, which... Um, the date normally put on that is 1608, 1609, but that 
is dependent on medieval glassware and medieval lens grinding. We get the first eyeglasses, spectacles in the 13th century. Um, and, um, and, and then also kind of technologies which are often ignored um, and which historians still today argue about whether they were um, kind of parallel tracks or whether they were influential ideas in engineering like uh, milling techniques which use gearing uh, camshafts again which have a kind of impact on later engineering work whether those were just kind of separate track that didn't really have much influence on science or whether that was something that uh, really fed into later scientific developments is a is a, a kind of moot point if you like um, but the the stuff that I focus on in my work is is astronomical so it's understandings of the stars it's it's the theories uh, that allow uh, later astronomers to come up with you know like Copernicus and so on to come up with their ideas were dependent on medieval uh, theories of the stars and, and medieval ideas about uh, making um, models of the planets that really worked. Yeah well I think all of this should encourage us to rethink uh, you know what we know about uh, medieval science and the importance of it to navigation. Seb thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, if you're interested in this topic of navigation and particularly the question of time, do please check out our forthcoming episode on the history of time in relation to the sea and maritime history, in which I speak with David Rooney, who served as the Keeper of Timekeeping at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. Please check out our YouTube channel. It's fantastic and showcases maritime history in ways you'll never have seen before. I promise. Who can ever forget our use of digital artistry to recreate Nelson's face from a plaster mask taken during his lifetime? Among other wonders of modern technology, there's even a 3D rendition of the Titanic based on her original lines. This podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. The Society for Nautical Research you can find at SNR. .org.uk. It's a fantastic way both to meet people and to learn about our maritime past from the world's best maritime scholars. And the History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation you can find at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk. These guys have been doing wonderful things in maritime history since 1760 and they're still leading the way, most recently with a wonderful project to film the world's best ship models with the very latest camera equipment. To find that, just Google maritime innovation in miniature.